Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we will talk about the current market environment, particularly the high-yield bond market, what you should know about SPACs, and what the true risk-free investment rate is. That's with our guest, David Sherman, who founded Crossing Bridge Advisors in 2016 and currently serves as a lead portfolio manager for the Crossing Bridge Fund family. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Manneman. And David, welcome to The Wang Machine. Thank you, Rusty. Well, you already know this question coming at you. It's the most important question right off the bat is we need to imagine what the song we can hear in the background as you walk up to the microphone for this interview. So... We do this all the time in our office and designate songs in regards to people. So this was pretty easy. Nice. My song is, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good from the animals. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Nice. Nice. I love that genre of music. You know, I actually just watched the movie the other day and the whole movie, that's all the music was. It was The Last Night in Soho. Did you see that movie? I have not. I'll now put it uh, on my list. The music was pretty cool. The movie got a little freaky towards the end, but it was still a pretty cool show. All right, to set the stage, please tell us a bit about you, your background in Crossing Bridge Advisors. So Crossing Bridge Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Kohansic Management. It was formed four plus years ago. It manages two of the Orion Brinker funds as a sub-advisor and is one of the multi-advised funds. It's an advisor in the Destinations Global Fixed Income Opportunities Fund and an advisor in the Destinations Low Duration Fixed Income Funds. So Crossing Bridge is the advisor to those two, as well as others. Crossing Bridge also has three other products. It has a Crossing Bridge Low Duration High Yield Bond Fund. It also has two funds we started in July, a Crossing Bridge Ultra Short Duration Fund and the Crossing Bridge Responsible Credit Fund. And then in September, we launched a pre-merger SPAC ETF under the Crossing Bridge label. Again, Crossing Bridge is a 100% wholly owned subsidiary of Kohansic on a consolidated basis. We manage over $3 billion of assets. And I founded Kohansic back in 1996 after leaving Lucadia National as a senior executive for 10 years where I was treasurer of their insurance operations and head of their investment division, as well as an executive of the parent company working on transactions and deals. Yeah, that's cool. And so even going back before that, where'd you go to school? Where are you from? I went to Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. Spent the summers working out at Drexel in LA, which is how I ended up hooking up with Locadia because they had an insurance company in St. Louis called Charter National Life and Charter bought a bunch of junk bonds and I got hired as a junior analyst while I was going to college. I grew up in Bridgeton, New Jersey, which is in Cumberland County, New Jersey, which is about as far south as you can get from Philadelphia toward the Delaware Bay. Makes me an Eagles fan for those out in Brinker homeland. Now I know why you're in the Brinker portfolios. There's the answer. <laughs> exactly. I also moonlight as an adjunct professor at NYU for a global value investing class nice. Thursdays in the fall. Okay. So one question that comes up right off the bat is once upon a time for all of us, because we're about the same age, it was required reading to read The Predator's Ball. Nobody ever talks about that book anymore. How true was The Predator's Ball? That's kind of the story of Drexel. 
right? Back in the 80s, how it all got started. I actually never read the book. <laughs> I got to live through it anecdotally. Yep. But I'm sure it's a pretty good representation of how things occurred. So did you have interaction with Michael Milken back in the day? Just briefly. Remember, I was an intern. So yeah. you know, I was on the yeah. trading floor. You know, I did have very brief interaction. Most of my interaction was with the research group with Bob David Allen, Larry Post, and Mitch Julis and various folks like that. Yeah, cool. All right. So you just mentioned a professor at NYU Stern School. So a couple questions on that is you teach a class called uh, Global Value Investing, right? I do. Tell us a little bit about that class. Sounds pretty fun. It's a great class. I got recruited. I don't take credit for starting the class. A good friend of mine named Jamie Rosenwald, who specializes in investing in Japan as an activist, started the class almost 10 years ago. He graduated from NYU as an executive MBA, felt that if he endowed the university with some money and let the students actually manage the money, they would learn through a practicum. And he created the Global Value Investing class that was originally six weeks long. It's now a 12-week course. And Jamie had been teaching it for eight years, and I had been lecturing. In year nine, he said, I'm trying to pass the baton because Jamie lives in California. Makes it a little hard for him to teach in the fall. So Jamie and I co-teach the class. And it really is quite interesting. It's value investing, but it tries to cover different parts of the world. We do everything from a lot on security analysis that people know with Graham and Dodd, all the way up to you know, how Europe is different than the United States versus Latin America versus Asia versus Russia. And I'll actually give you a little tidbit that we teach in the class that most yep. people probably don't know. You're familiar with the euro, correct? The euro currency? And if yep. you have a euro bill, just like in our US dollar bill, we have presidents. What do you think they have on the euro bill? Gosh, I don't know that answer. Well, do you think it's a person, a place, an object? <laughs> I mean, I would have to guess a person, but I don't know. This obviously is going to be a good question. It's actually pretty much all arches and monuments. And they're not even famous arches and monuments. They're fictitious because they couldn't <laughs> even figure out what to put on their bill that wouldn't cause a squabble among themselves as an EU. So that was many, many years ago. Tells you a little bit about how we think about EU and, and the European Union. What's interesting today is younger generations perceive from Germany, for instance, perceive Portugal and, and folks from Greek as their brethren and would do things to support them like a true union like we do in our United States. Yeah. Um, whereas if you go to the older generations, Let's go to 80 just to make life easy. They keep talking about how, you know, World War II and who was the ally and who was a, and the evil access. So I think over the years, generationally, it'll change and make it more unified. But that's an example of something that, you know, is not obvious that does affect how you think about alignment of interest and investments and opportunity. One other question about your classroom. How are the students different from back when we were in college, in your opinion? So this is an MBA class. I don't have an MBA. So I did take some MBA level courses. So I'll look back to that. So we have a lot yeah. more representation of women. Class was actually 48% women, uh, which is the largest piece we've had since Jamie's taught the class and since I've been involved in the class. We have a lot more folks from outside the United States. It's interesting. When I was involved at Washington University, they created a master's of finance program unrelated to the class. But what was interesting was if you did sort of the skills in high-level mathematics and statistics, the foreign students, primarily from Asia, did very, very well. But when it came to interviewing for jobs and getting the jobs, they didn't do as well. And what we realized is you need to set up a remedial course for the Americans in statistics 
uh, for those who needed to pass or take more classes. And then you need to set up a remedial course for, for some of the foreign students to be able to present themselves in a more American way for those that need it. Not everybody needs it. So you see similar divisions among the students and how they approach problems and think about things. I think the most interesting example of that is if you talk about skin in the game, management having skin in the game, most Western investors think about it as, oh, I want management to have some skin in the game, but I don't want them to control the company, right? Because I always want to have the ability for an activist to come in and unlock that. Not everyone feels that way, but many do. Whereas if you go to some of the foreign students, particularly from places like China, India, Latin America, they actually think the opposite. They want management and the family to have a significant control of the company. And I think that has to go, when you start thinking about property rights and the value of name and involvement in the national headlines, it sort of makes sense. But that's a great example of you get great dialogue between the students, which you wouldn't have had when I went to MBA, when I was you know, taking MBA level classes. So I think you just kind of touched upon this. My next question is, so let's say you had to hire, you wanted to hire somebody from your classroom. What attributes would you be looking for? So I, in fact, do hire from my classroom. Perfect. Yeah. The most recent student I hired is an analyst who's been with us for a little over a year, Chen Ling. She's an American citizen, but her family was born in China. Family is Chinese nationals. This year coming up, we've announced that we will make an offer to someone in the class they may not accept it, but we'll make an offer to somebody. So we, in fact, do use this as a feeding ground to try to hire people. And what do I look for? I look for somebody who is extremely thoughtful, you know, understands basic fundamental analysis, but thinks beyond the numbers, thinks about a business model and the factors that affect it, and really can do more than just read a balance sheet. And then more importantly, someone who's willing to advocate and really speak their mind. I like somebody who's willing to debate and have a discussion, not someone who's like, yes, that sounds brilliant, right? You want that natural discourse going on. Yep, right on. I totally agree with that. And our highest honor internally was to have the Maverick Award, somebody who disagreed with everybody else. Who, But we quantified it three different ways. It's like, one, you were out of consensus with the rest of the team. Two, you were able to change your mind. So if you actually change your mind, and also you just had a view. I mean, you could either like it or not like it or be neutral. So you had to have a view. So we would actually quantify that. And that was our highest honor to have. One other thing I was just thinking about, many years ago, I worked at Fidelity, FMR Co. as an analyst there. And one of my very first presentations was to somebody named Gary Burkhead, who basically was the boss of all the PMs. You know, when I got done making my presentation, it was in front of my whole team. It was like a really big deal. It was pretty nerve wracking. But we did ask Gary, like, what do you think are the key attributes of a, of a portfolio manager? And basically, he's, you know, obviously intelligence, analytical skills, all that was table stakes. He said, what really makes the top analysts and the PMs are those that can communicate, get their foot in the door and sell their ideas. It's no good if you come up with great ideas and you can't sell them. So just always sort of remembered that. What made Chen, by the way, stand out was there was a rule that in the endowment for the positions the students picked. They had to have a two-year hold period. And she had conviction that one of the investments from a prior class was a bad investment and that we should waive the two-year hold rule no matter what. <laughs> yeah. She got points because she acknowledged the rule, but then it really stood out that she had conviction and said, look, a rule is a rule, but we need to make an exception. So that's a great example of what you were describing. Good for her. 
All right, let's get to the juicy stuff. As we're recording this today, obviously there's a lot of market volatility. And today, even like 10-year treasury yields blew through 2% and the highest level since the summer of 2019. So a lot of stuff going on. How are you currently assessing the current market conditions? And what are you currently thinking about the global economy and the global markets? So obviously a war between Russia and Ukraine was not something that I had thought was going to happen in the Thanksgiving Christmas period of when we were sort of thinking about positioning for the year. We have been positioned very conservatively. We've been positioned because when the Fed says they're going to raise rates, I tend to believe them. So we had been very focused on what happens to a portfolio during rising rates, not only as a bond portfolio from a maturity and, and duration and convexity, but also what happens to credit quality during a rising rate environment. And we also were thinking about it not just from the Fed raising rates, but the fact that the Fed was implying they would taper their balance sheet. And I'm actually much more focused, ignoring today's war, about the tapering, because I think tapering has a much greater effect on the market than rising rates. And this is true both in the US and Europe. I'm just focusing on US at the moment. Because traditionally, high yield has always been a cushion against rising rates because of that spread. The spreads get squeezed rather than necessarily a price change that's as great as it would be an investment grade. With the Fed decreasing their balance sheet, a much different thing has happened, which is if they stop buying Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, mortgage-backed securities, commercial-backed securities, asset-backed securities, that all needs to find a home. A trillion dollars of securities need to find a home. They will, but they'll do it through spread widening. Well, if that spread widens, then it's going to affect investment-grade issuance spreads. It's going to affect high-yield spreads. It's going to affect multiples on stocks, right? So that spread widening, and you're in an environment where traditionally, I think liquidity premiums and risk premiums were diminished, right? So you had a narrow liquidity premium and risk premium market at a time when people could see the rising of rates. I don't really care if the Fed raises 50 to 100 basis points. I don't think that short end is going to matter from a corporate issuance or valuation. It's that tapering. And you already had a period where, for instance, investment grade bonds were not expensive on a spread basis. You were getting 90 to 100 basis point spread back in the end of the third quarter, early fourth quarter, which is what you got in the 90s relative to the treasury. The problem was the treasury. But with them tapering, that spread's going to widen even more. So that was what we were looking at at the beginning of the year. So we were fortunate that we've been very defensive position coming into the current turmoil that's going on in the market as a result of the geopolitical environment. You know, sometimes it's really great to be lucky. And our positioning, we were fortunate that we had a conservative approach when bad things happen. So quite frankly, the destinations funds that we sub-advise, I think if people look at them, the global fixed and the low duration, have done top of their class since Fed started Fed talk of raising rates back in November, but even through this year, year to date. I'm not sure as of today, but certainly a week ago, both of those funds, I think, were positive or pretty close to being positive. And the Crossing Bridge products, similar, the ultra short duration, the low duration, none of them have really taken on much water and in some cases in positive. But again, it's because we were already defensive. And then because we had that position, we were a little lucky. Sometimes, you know, you get lucky. Maybe I should have thought, oh, there'll be a war because they're having conversations about NATO, but I didn't. So it's worked out okay. And we think there's opportunity today. So obviously, you talked about liquidity characteristics and valuations, but do you take a macro view on 
global economic growth and inflation? Does that even factor into you making investment decisions? So the answer is not primary factor. I think whether it's industry-based or it's macro-based, you do have to have an opinion because you know those points make a difference. But I think we're fundamentally bottom-up. So we're focusing on, is it a good investment? You know, a good investment's a good investment, right? You just have to, you know, let it earn out, so to speak, like a traditional value investor. And some things aren't good investments. And I think really understanding the drivers and the pieces that affect both your credit quality as well as the total valuation are really important. Just one comment. You know, we've had very yeah. little exposure, I mean, for a long time. I mean, most of my career at Kohanzik and Crossing Bridge in places like Russia and China. And one of the reasons is, and in fact, I talked about this. When my father died, I allocated some of his money to a guy who was very good at India. And they said, why not China? Um, and I think this is a good example. I said, well, India practices Anglo law, values property rights. I can read the financials because they're in English. And it's a democracy. China's totalitarian government doesn't value property rights. And yes, it's a growth engine and people are going to make a lot of money in China. And, I, and, it, and it, was, it turned out to be a great investment for people. But it wasn't for me because I didn't understand those principles. So I think really having conviction of what you know well and what you're comfortable with is important. Now, you said the, the environment's getting a little more attractive. And there's some more opportunities showing up. As a value investor, do you need a predetermined catalyst or do you just need the conditions in place, the valuations in place? Both. I mean, I think it depends on the specific investment. So obviously, a catalyst is important. How are you going to unlock the value? Or when is that day of record? That isn't a necessity. But it's something that obviously makes life a little more certain that you have an expectation. Also, you need the fat pitch. So today is the 15th. Let's back roll when tanks were just starting to move into Ukraine. And the market, we're a large investor in the Scandinavian market. The Scandinavian market was the first to actually really react negatively to this news, which makes sense because of Sweden and Norway and Finland. And I got a call because they were already having to raise liquidity. These are, we need liquidity bids. And somebody said, I have some Stolt-Nielsen bonds, US dollar denominated, an excellent shipper that we've known for years. And I could buy them to an 8% yield to maturity to August. And the company will absolutely have the capital to refinance out these bonds. It's not an issue. There's not a credit issue in my mind here. Even with a war, I'm pretty sure the ship's going to keep going. The rates are going to get paid. The bonds are going to get paid off. If they don't, and heaven forbid this actually converted into a, a proceeding and we ended up owning equity in Sol Nielsen, it would be a great entry price, right? So that's my margin of safety. 8% to August is a very attractive yield. And they were selling it because the price haircut they were going to take between now and August was less than the price talk of something with a longer maturity. So that's a great example of the setup was perfect. What's my catalyst? Yeah. Maturity. That's my catalyst. I guess the reason I ask is that I've talked to a lot of value managers over the years, and I'm trying to think, I think it was David Dreeman, who I used to cover quite a bit, and he said, I don't need a catalyst. Once I have the valuations in place, and I'm a long-term investor, and I have enough of these opportunities, I'll be okay. So Something along those lines. I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, as a bond person, your ultimate catalyst is the maturity date. Yeah. Right? But if you're speaking from an equity perspective, that's the line I say to people all the time. I'm pretty sure I'm going to make money. I just don't know how much and how long it's going to take. And that's great if you have an investor base that has the same asset liability match as you do. But you have to remember, when you manage a fund, you're a bank. Those are depositors. Those are people that are basically liabilities. They'll pull their money when they want. 
So it's great if you're right in the long run, but if everybody redeemed while you were waiting, not so great, right? Because you didn't get that day of opportunity. So I, I think it's great to take that view that value will earn out. But I think one also has to be realistic on what your constituency is and the asset liability max. What is that capital that's supporting your investment decision? You just said something like value will out. I think it was a saying I used to hear all the time too. I haven't heard that one in a long time. So, all right, let's talk about high yield bonds. This is an asset class that I find over the years that some people hate it, some people love it. So strategically, some people will not put it in their asset allocation. Some people make it a, a very large component. Some people say that it is a significant part of your fixed income allocation. Some say you just don't put in your fixed income at all. It's like a whole different thing. How do you look at high yield as an asset class? I view high yield as a hybrid between fixed income and equity. And I think if people are uncomfortable with high yield because their perception is that it's greater risk, then just like you're uncomfortable with anything else, whether it's growth investing or crypto or gold or non-ESG or only ESG, I think people have a core belief, a DNA of what makes them comfortable, and they only invest the best when they do things they're comfortable. Because when you're not making money in things you're not comfortable, it's just not a good psychological environment. But if you're comfortable or you're willing to get educated, what you will learn about high yield is that typically it provides slightly less equity returns with less volatility. And what people haven't parsed out is how much of that slightly less equity return is a result that we've had a 20 plus year bull market in rates and how much is attributed to that versus the improvement or spread. One of the things that's happened to high yield is in the old days, high yield would graduate. It would get bought out. It would become investment grade. Today, if it's high yield, it pretty much stays high yield for a long time. And you know now you have private equity firms selling a LBO from one person to another. So it's a very different evolution than the old days when Milken did the study. And I definitely think in general, high yield and leverage loans have potentially greater credit risk today than they did back in the late 80s, or early 90s, if you could parse through them, because there's been so much acceptance of an asset class. You know, that being said, I think most people have gotten very comfortable with leverage loans. And I actually think they don't really appreciate the deterioration of credit quality in leverage loans. Um, if it just remember, if it's a great leverage loan, the bank isn't syndicating and it's sitting on their books, right? So they're syndicating the stuff that they want to syndicate relative to the risk. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't great opportunities. We buy leverage loans all the time. But I think if you ask me in high yield where the biggest misappreciated credit risk is, that's where it would be. Does that usually happen when spreads get tight and people are scrambling for income? The demand is just there. and When there's too much money chasing too few goods, right? it happens. What's interesting in loans is because of the advent of CLOs and CDOs, right? leveraged structures, structures where it's a securitization, no different than credit cards or real estate, where they say, look, you put up a little bit of equity and we're going to leverage it multiple times with different tranches of debt, with different points of attachment points of where you incur risk, right? That's the CLO market. Well, what that does, and, and the CLO guys have been very clever and they say it's sort of like a bank, right? But what's, what's interesting about it is as money has grown in that sector, they don't want to give up yield, right? Because they're in the spread business, right? And they don't really want to give up terms of leverage, right? Because they're like a bank. 
So what they'll do is they'll give up covenant. And then we had the evolution of covenant light as a result of that, which I, again, we own some covenant light bonds. I think you have to be careful, but I describe that as a little bit like a rich person getting married without a prenup. It's great until it isn't. High yield is sometimes considered sort of that asset class. You're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Maybe it's silver dollars in front of a steamroller. How do you look at the tail risk of this asset class and how do you manage for those tail risk? It's a good question. I don't like to paint any asset class in a broad stroke like that because I think it's unfair. I'm going to answer your question, but I want to make people aware of certain things. So there's a product we advise called the River Park Short-Term High Yield Bond product, which was a a mutual fund that Brinker originally had looked at before they started their own funds. We do similar strategy for some of their funds where we buy debt that has been called and redeemed, which means a corporation issued debt, just like when you get a mortgage. But unlike a mortgage where you can prepay it whenever you want because rates went down or you moved or you know any other reason, here you have to give the issuer, the lender, notice, typically 30 days. Right. So during that period of 30 days, they've raised the money and they're taking it out. They can't change the contractual terms once they call it. They're required to take it out once they say they will. And during those 30 days, you know it's coming out and you have to do some basic credit work, but you know it's coming out. Right. Yet it's a great opportunity to earn cash alternative type yields. Money market funds can't buy it very much because it's high yield and high yield issuers don't want to own it. High yield lenders, excuse me, high yield buyers. Don't want to own it because one, it's coming out in 30 days. So if you're an insurance company, you have longer term liabilities, you want to invest longer and you want to buy the new issue. So, you know, today we can buy called redeemed junk bonds at two and a half to three percent for 30 days. You can't buy, even with this rise in interest rates, you can't buy anything like commercial paper at that kind of yield. So there's an example, it's high yield, but it's its subsegment in among itself. Now, to answer your question directly, most high yield doesn't have a long tail risk. Most high yield is five years or less in maturity. You can say that's a lot of tail risk, but that's not nearly you know, what it used to be. A lot of high yield and leveraged loans have certain covenants like change of control provisions if a company gets acquired, which investment grade bonds don't typically. So there are features that do protect some of that potential tail risk. I think at the end of the day, you have to look at the credit quality and see how does it do in various business cycles? How much leverage is there and is it going to be money good? Yeah. I do agree with that point about, you know, a lot of people treat high yield as like a singular asset class. I've always kind of felt like double Bs act a lot different than single Bs and you keep on going down. It just seems like they all have their different sort of return risk profiles to them. I agree. I would take a somewhat of an exception when you look at ratings in that they're very good when the ratings are issued, but the rating agencies don't do a really good job of updating and maintaining information on those ratings. So you can have a triple C that actually probably is a triple, close to a triple B kind of quality, but they just, it went off into la-la land and nobody paid attention to it. And you can have a, somebody who's issued as a single B that looks really like on its way to default. So I want to caution people when they look at ratings that the closer that rating is to the issue date of the bond, the more accurate that rating is going to be reflected. That's a great point. The prices always drop before the credit ratings deal. You know, it's kind of one of those tricks of the industry. I felt like when you talk to high yield managers, a lot of them say like, I've never owned a high yield bond that's defaulted. It's like, well, did you ever own a high yield bond that dropped in price beforehand? You know? There was a famous mutual fund in Delaware, the Delaware guys always said that because they sold it before it defaulted. You know, I'm happy to buy a defaulted bond. You know, one of the things we do for the destination accounts and we do in our crossing accounts is we buy companies that are in bankruptcy, knowing they're in bankruptcy, where we provide debtor and possession financing. 
These are loans where we're lending the company money in bankruptcy that's at the top of the capital structure, gets paid before anything else because it was blessed by the bankruptcy court. It's like a working capital loan. One of our largest positions across the board is Mallinckrodt, the company that went you know, under because of the opioid litigation. And we own a ton of revolving paper that's going to come out as cash as the plan is in the process being confirmed. Okay, one more question on high yield, I think. I might think of another one. But what about the view that high yield is one of those asset classes, which is a good inflation hedge? What do you think about that one? I think when we talk about inflation heads, whether it's called high yield or anything else, we have to talk about, are we having stagflation, hyperinflation, benevolent inflation? You know, I'm familiar with the book End of Money, which talks about the German Republic and when money sort of deteriorated. You know, no one sort of figured out what to do in a really, really nasty inflation environment. You know, people, traditionally people say, oh, you want to own real estate. Well, if it's inflation where you don't get wage increases and profit increases, real estate's not going to help you. And what about property taxes, right? So, and, and municipality solvency. So I think inflation's a tough one to think about. I think at the end of the day, you want to own things where the underlying businesses get pricing power. It can be passed along of a product that's needed. And if that's true and it's good for an equity, it'll be okay for a high yield or investment grade credit. But I think that's really where you have to look when you think about inflation. Well, this would really speak to the value of active management in this space as opposed to just owning an index, right? The high yield index has been a very tough index, just like the S&P 500 to be, in fact, yeah. probably harder. I think, though, part of that's related to the large bull market we've had in fixed income. And people just forget. Um, they'll talk about how much money they made in the stock market or in various other things. They say, well, take a house. If you leverage it, where you put up 30% equity and you leverage 70% of it, and you bought it, call it 1985. Well, what about if you just bought a portfolio of treasuries in 1985 that were 14%, right? And levered it at the same level and just held them to maturity you'd have a pretty good return on your hands. But you know, I think active management going forward, and I think the Ukraine situation, the Fed raising rates, I think going forward, I think I'm a believer in active management. I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid. I think when you get trends that are not long-term secular trends that are obvious, it gets harder to be a passive investor. Let's move up into investment grade bonds. So assuming we're in an environment of rising interest rates, how should investors be thinking about investment grade bonds? Look, the problem with investment grade bonds, which is also a problem for high yield bonds, which is a problem for every fixed income, is the underlying reference, which is a treasury. So if you think that treasury rates are going up and staying up in the long term, which by the way, I don't happen to believe, you have a problem regardless, whether it's equities or bonds. But in general, I think investment-grade bonds are cheap relative to their historic spreads. And I've talked about that in the fourth quarter. I talked about it briefly in this call. You know, The problem is earning 1.2% more where companies have an incentive to borrow money to reward shareholders through financial engineering, and you don't have a lot of covenants to protect yourself, and you've got a treasury that people are convinced are just beginning to go up, is a very unappealing, losing proposition if they're correct. You know, and in high yield, it also has issues. You have more spread and you have more yield, so you have more cushion. Same thing with equities, right? So I think at the end of the day, you need to look at cash flow generation and look at 
things as substitutes and alternatives. All right, let's move. Let's change the topics. Uh, let's move to something you just recently launched a, a fund in, and that is SPACs. I did. Big topic last year. So what are they, and why do you think financial advisors and investors should care? We've been involved in the SPAC market since 2005, so we're not a newcomer to this. And I think SPACs are very misunderstood. So there are times when SPACs are bond-like securities or fixed-income-like securities, and there are times that they're equity securities. And even within its structure, those like. So I think, let me explain what a SPAC is, and let me explain why they can be fixed-income-like and why they can be equity. And then let me specifically tell you why, obviously, it's an interesting opportunity. Now that I can buy high-yield bonds maturing in August at 8%, it's a little less interesting than it was a mere three weeks ago. But it's still an interesting opportunity. So a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition fund. What it means is a company has a sponsor. Anyone can be a sponsor. It can be Apollo. It can be Elliott, which is Paul Singer. It can be Warburg Pincus. It can be Colbert Kravis, or it can be some investment banker who just wants to make a lot of money on his next adventure, and he used to run UBS, investment banking. It can be an entrepreneur. There are some established SPAC players who've been around for a long time, like the Gores Brothers. There have been some relatively new SPAC sponsors who are serial SPAC issuers, such as guys like Live Oak and RMG Acquisition. And then there's new players, but are well-established institutions. The people that are sponsored are typically private equity, venture capital, or hedge fund-oriented people. And these people put up the capital to allow a company to go public. So what does that mean? A company is going to go public by issuing stock and raising cash to individual investors and institutional investors. But the cash is going to go into a collateral account or an escrow account. But still, there's costs for lawyers, investment bankers, listing fees. Just like if you launch a mutual fund or you launch an ETF, there's all these formation costs. Plus, there's the costs of running the SPAC down the road. So the sponsors put up that money. So on a $200 million SPAC, a sponsor will put up about $8 million of risk capital. So what does that mean? Or more. That means if they come up with a deal and it gets approved and it becomes a company that gets merged, they get to keep their risk capital. But if they fail and the SPAC liquidates, they lose the risk capital. Enough of the sponsors. So now they go and issue $200 million of cash. And they go to somebody like me and they say, you know, we want to take $200 million of your money. And traditionally, you'd give them $200 million and that $200 million would go into a trust account. Sometimes a little more would go into the trust account. It would be over collateralized, which is the case today. And that's for the benefit of shareholders. And the company has a liquidation date, typically two years or less. Today, it's about 15 months, which means if they don't come up with a transaction within two years that's approved by shareholders, you go to the trust account and you get all your money plus any interest that's been earned as a shareholder. So it's almost like a defeased immunity. Then they say, well, to induce you to also put up the capital, we're going to give you warrants or rights or other bells and whistles. And maybe they'll give you a warrant where for every two shares you own, you have the right to buy one common stock of the merged company in the future at $11.50 a share, because SPACs are usually issued at 10. So at a 15% premium, that's good for five years. So the concept is if I give you a unit with stock and warrants, and the stock's backed by cash on trust account, one plus one equals more than two, right? Because somebody's going to value the warrant because of option value, and someone's going to value the stock because it's principal protected. Now, it doesn't really typically trade. You know, there are periods during the mean period between Labor Day of 2020 
and St. Patrick's Day of 2021 where people overvalued them. Traditionally, the unit just traded at around the issue price, plus a little, minus a little. And when they split, where the warrant becomes freely tradable and the stock becomes freely tradable, if you choose to split it, split it within 60 days, right? If you take the two pieces together, they still equal the unit price that you were issued. The warrants only make money if there's a deal. The deal doesn't happen, the warrants go away. We don't buy the warrants. We sell off the warrants. Other people buy the warrants. If you buy the warrants, it's like owning a portfolio, a venture capital portfolio. I own a bunch of warrants, a lot of companies. And if one hits, it becomes the next DraftKings. It makes up for all the others that don't work, right? But if you sell off the warrants, you're reducing your cost in your purchase price, whether it's the IPO or the secondary market, right? And it enhances your yield. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know this is getting a little confusing for people. We have a great cartoon that's coming out next week that they can look at. <laughs> we'll make sure that's in the show notes, by the way. Think about it. You're buying a note typically of two years or less of maturity with a zero coupon that's over collateralized or collateralized at par. You're getting it at a discount. If you sell off the warrant, you're buying a bigger discount. Now, if a company announces a deal, you get to vote for or against the deal. Almost everybody votes for the deal. Why? Because the shareholders can vote for the deal, but then they can say, I still want my money back. They can redeem. They can basically put their shares back to get the cash in the trust account. So they do it because they want their money back and it shortens the maturity. And by the way, if you bought it at a discount and the maturity was originally two years, but they announce a deal and you have the right to redeem within a year, you just amortize that discount over a shorter period of time. So why are they attractive? If you redeem, they're fixed income like because they have a liquidation date. At a redemption, you're going to put it back to the company. You have a zero coupon, but as long as you buy it below trust value, it's like buying a zero coupon bond at a discount. You're going to make a yield and it's backed by treasuries. If you merge into the company, that's an equity decision. If you want to own Rover.com, the dog walking app, that's a separate decision. right? But if you're redeeming, you're redeeming. So what we do is we buy them at or below trust value. They either liquidate or we always redeem and we make that yield. So it's a stock it's really like a zero coupon bond with a maturity of 15 months, 12 months. And today you can make, we bought one today at three and a half percent where there's a maturity in 14 months. So in 14 months, we're going to make three and a half percent. And if they announce a deal prior to that and close it, we redeem it sooner, our yield will go up because the discount is there. You can't buy 14 month treasuries at three and a half percent. That's your credit risk. Now you have mark to market risk. Right. So you have to be able to hold it for 14 months to get your capital gain. Right. It's not ordinary income. It's a capital gain. That's the other thing that's nice. In that case, you get long term capital gain. So if you're looking at how do I create a portfolio where this market's very messy? I don't know where the future is, but you know, I'd like to just take a bunch of money and put it away for six months to a year and a half or six months to a year. You can buy a bunch of SPACs, get enhanced returns of three, three and a half percent pretty easily in today's market, maybe even more. You have mark-to-market risk, but you're going to get that yield. That's a very attractive yield, even by the fact that the five-year just went over 2%. Now, if interest rates go down, you won't make as much because it's shorter duration. But that's why I think they're attractive. So how are investors using this? It's not really a cash proxy because there's credit risk. So it's kind of like you would use it in a lieu. No, there's not credit risk. So there's not. So you could use it as a cash proxy. There's mark-to-market risk. Yeah. But your credit risk is the collateral count of US T-bills as long as you buy them below trust value. So one of the ways is you could, you could go to SPACinformer.com which is a website we own. And every week we download the, the entire SPAC universe and you can do it yourself or you can buy products that have this as part of their asset class. So in the two Brinker products and our low duration product and our ultra short product, 
part of the portfolio has SPAC exposure like this, or you can just buy our ETF, SPC, which is the Crossing Bridge Pre-Merger SPAC. In the prospectus, we specifically say we're going to buy SPACs at or below trust value, and we specifically say that we're not going to roll. We're going to sell them or take them to liquidation. There are two other similar ETFs. One is CSH, and the other is the Robinson SPAC, SPAX. I think we're better. We're also bigger. Um, and our spreads are better, but those are others that people want to look at those as well. How are investors allocating to it? It's like, what is like a portfolio weight that you're typically seeing? You know, it's interesting. I think they're doing a lot the way we're doing. So for instance, in our low duration strategies, it's about 10 to 15% of our allocation at the moment of a diverse portfolio of over 200 SPACs. So not one single SPAC. And what's great is if one of them becomes the next Donald Trump, you know, media empire, and we had in the ETF a small position in that. Right. Let's say it's a 20 base point position, but it doubles. You just added 20 basis points of returns. I talked about the yield that you're locking into liquidation, or if they announce an earlier deal, you get a higher yield. So if you buy a SPAC at a three, three and a half percent yield to liquidation, you can make more return if it closes a transaction sooner and you put it, or if it's a good transaction, it trades up, right? And then you sell in the up market. So you have this optionality to make more return either through a shorter maturity, through putting the redemption or because the SPAC itself announces a good deal. But I think people are looking at it as a surrogate for sort of six-month to 12-month cash balances or fixed income, right? A short-term fixed income portfolio. Yeah, I like it a lot better than an investment-grade short-term fixed income portfolio. So what is your side of the debate like when it comes to a macro asset allocator when they're talking about SPACs? So on one hand, there's the view that while SPACs have been around for a while, their popularity has exploded the last couple of years, particularly last year. There were, I think there were more SPACs, new SPACs that came out last year than even stock IPOs, which an IPO has kind of blew it out of the water last year too. So some people say that is a sign of excess and a sign the market is toppy. Other people say though, SPACs, that's a lot of buying power. Those are people with professional investors with incentives. That's buying power. So it's actually a really bullish thing. How should we think about it? There's two separate <laughs> questions here. Yeah. One is, how do you think about it, which I will address. The other is, does it even matter? So let's start with, does it even matter? If you're buying SPACs, which have a, a collateral count of T-bills, a maturity date of two years or less, currently, let's say, 14 months, and if they announce a deal, you have the right to put it and get your money back early out of that T-bills, and you buy it at or below trust value, and maybe they announce a good deal and it goes up a bunch, you don't care. None of this matters. You're buying a proxy as a fixed income alternative. You're buying a portfolio that's going to probably generate three, three and a half percent worst case kind of returns, expected worst case return returns. I mean, it could be worse, right? I mean, anything could be worse, but that's sort of the yield you're buying in at. Yes, you'll take some mark to market risk because hedge funds leverage these things. And if they get a tap on the shoulder, there could be forced liquidation, which means that you'll be able to buy them even better yields. But your principal risk is still that collateral account of T-bills. You know, those are excellent returns, even in a rising rate environment, because the money's going to come out back to you so quickly. So you don't really care if the SPAC market's got too much issuance, not enough issuance. In fact, the less issuance that they stop, the more likely the spreads are going to compress and you'll get a capital gain sooner, right? You just won't be able to continue the party. We launched the ETF because we think it's a permanent asset class. We didn't do it for a quick you know, let's buy a bunch of money and make it. And remember, we're not planning to participate in the deals. We're planning to redeem. 
So we think the industry has gotten big enough as a capital formation source that it's permanent. In fact, University of Chicago just came out with a study that talks about as a capital formation tool that SPACs have a permanent use from the finance department. It's not for everyone. It doesn't make sense. Now, in answer to your question about dry powder and everything, there's no question that SPACs became part of the meme environment. They shouldn't trade above trust value. I mean, you had SPACs trading at $12 with $10 in trust and no deal. Why would you pay somebody a 20% premium hoping they do a good deal, right? That's not what we're talking about here. But that was a very brief period that was unusual. Remember, I go back to 05. Right from remember what I'm calling the Labor Day of 2021 to the St. Patrick's Day of 2021. As far as dry powder, look, the private equity market and the venture capital market have a need for SPACs, right? Because in order for venture capital mature companies to raise additional capital before they become profitable or as they become profitable, they need to be able to raise more money. And the valuations have grown so much, they need a public valuation because the private valuation arbitrage between public and private is diminishing. Same thing with LBOs. So this allows them to get a discounted public market valuation versus the private market. The problem is a lot of SPACs are doing bad deals and they're overpaying. And that's an alignment of interest problem because the sponsors get 20% of the value of the SPAC if they get a deal done. So it's sort of buyer beware. But, you know, Utz potato chips which was a private company forever, successfully in public by merging a SPAC, and it's an excellent consumer brands company. I mean, there are perfectly good companies. It's no different than the IPO market. How many companies have gone public in the IPO market that today look terrible? A lot. So buyer beware, but I do think it's a permanent asset class. And I think in a bad tape like this, it could be a source of capital for people because valuations would come in and then it would be a source of capital formation. I'll have to link that Chicago study to the show notes as well. Okay, so the next question is, we had a conversation a few weeks ago, and you had an interesting take on what the true risk-free rate is for most investors, individual long-term investors. So you know, a lot of people think it's like the three-year T-bill. Some say it's maybe like a 10-year corporate bond, but you had a different answer for the risk-free rate. Right. So in corporate finance, you're taught the treasuries are your riskless asset. I'm not sure why U.S. treasuries are your riskless assets opposed to, let's say, the Russian sovereign treasury, but maybe in <laughs> Russia, that's the, the riskless asset. I guess the implication yeah. is the U.S. government will never default on its securities, which is not exactly a guaranteed assumption. So I have a very different take. Almost all of your audience at one time had a mortgage if they own a home, and they may still have a mortgage, right? And those that have a mortgage either have it because they choose to have a mortgage because it's a form of quote, cheap money for them to then invest in other things. Or it's a good asset liability max, allows them to have some cash around it for a rainy day. But others have a mortgage, like most of us when we first buy a house, out of necessity. Right? We don't have the money to plop down for a house. Well, what's interesting about a mortgage is you generally live in your primary residency and you have to pay it back or you go personally bankrupt. So to me, a riskless asset is the mortgage rate on a home. right? Because most individuals ideally would like to own their own home. And if they choose to rent, it's because they think it's a cheaper fixed income, cheaper capital allocation choice. And if you take a mortgage, you got to pay it back. And it's an alternative to rent. So I tell people when I look at a hurdle rate for the riskless asset, I look and say, if I were buying a home and I was going to finance it with a mortgage, what's that mortgage rate? 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other reason I do is I used to get this answer. The way it got crystallized, my cousin, who's a genetic scientist at University of Washington, Seattle, did some private work and got a bunch of money from his stock options. And he said, what do I do with my money? I said, pay off your mortgage because it was long-term money. He goes, well, why would I do that? I can invest in the stock market. I said, tell you what, pay off your mortgage and now go to the bank and decide if you want to borrow against your house to invest in the stock market. I said, that's a very <laughs> different way of looking at it than, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just going to invest in the stock market. Yeah. I was just going to ask you what your view was on paying down your mortgage. It's awesome. Let's get more philosophical here on, so you've been in the industry for a while. You've been around a lot of high quality investment professionals. What do you think the characteristics are of a good portfolio manager? What are the key things? What would you look for? If, you, if somebody said, David, you can no longer manage your money, you have to outsource it, what would you look for? So I'm going to assume that everyone who's in the money management business has some level of high intelligence and skill and fundamental background, or they wouldn't be able to attract people's interest to raise to manage money to start with. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's assume that, you know, what distinguishes a good portfolio manager from a great portfolio manager? And I don't think it's returns, although that seems to be the measuring. I think it's discipline, right? How disciplined are they? Because returns measure a brief period of time, but you don't know one. Did they get lucky? Did they style drift? And what's going to happen if you continue to let them have the money? And unfortunately, most of us don't say I'm giving money manager money, and maybe they'll make it a bigger allocation or a small allocation, but I'm going to leave it there for the next 40 years. It's just not how the mentality works. So the most important thing is the person you're allocating money for, are they disciplined in what they did and how they built the returns and continue to do it? Because if they're not disciplined, what you think you're getting may be different than what you actually get. Um, and when I talk about long-term, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to give you two examples that I talk about in class in NYU. One is go back and look at Warren Buffett's annual letter. And in his annual letter, he publishes his returns every year. And look at some of the early years. And ask yourself, in those early years when he was down over 40% and then down again the subsequent year, would you have said, oh, I'm sticking with this manager now? That manager is one of the best performing track records in the history of money managers, right? But if you left early, like most people would, you wouldn't get that benefit. And the one thing Mr. Buffett is, is he's very disciplined. And yes, everybody has makes mistakes, right? I would say if you look at where his biggest underperformances are, it's when he's focused on things that were capital intensive, that were commodity-driven pricing, such as and needed capital markets for financing. Airlines, Solomon Brothers, right? And yes, he's made mistakes. But by and large, he's been pretty disciplined. If you look, he's pretty much looked for companies that are fundamentally good businesses with big pricing power and high ROE, high return on equity. And he's waited patiently for a good entry price. And he's prepared to hold cash. He'll tell you cash is a legitimate asset class, right? So that's a great example. The other two example I want to talk about is let's talk about after 08. So going after 08, take two managers, take Seth Klarman, who I think the world of and I think is a great investor, and take Ken Griffin from Citadel, who's also a great, I'd say more of a trader than an investor. Well, Ken got annihilated in 08. Annihilated. But if you look at the return, if you invested at the beginning of 07 or even at the end of 07 with Seth Klarman and Ken, Ken has grossly outperformed Seth during the rest of the period, right? It doesn't mean that Ken's better than Seth or Seth's worse than Ken. They're just different types of investors with different 
VAR and volatility exposure, but they're both also very disciplined investors. So it's a sort of a wordy answer to your question, but I think understanding what your product that is being given to you and who and how it's managed, right? I view Seth Klarman's hedge fund or Warren Buffett's stock as a product, no different than a mutual fund, an ETF, or an individual investment, right? But understanding yeah. that and the management team behind it is crucial. And I think discipline is something people don't appreciate as much as they should. Hallelujah. I love it. You know, I think discipline is such key. Having done due diligence on managers for a while now, the, probably if I've always the kind of the sweet spot to fish is finding a manager that has some sort of long-term track record of success, but has temporarily lost it. You know, their, their performance has been maybe lackluster the last three years or whatever. And you really want to see how disciplined they are to their process. And those are the managers I think you want to buy with new money is those good managers that have underperformed over like a three-year time frame or something like that, which is kind of the reverse of how most money is invested in our industry. They're usually buying like the top performer over the last three years, top decile. Look, people underperform and outperform at various times, again, depending on the economic environment, depending on the product cycle. And certain products are more opportunistic at certain times than others. Let's take something I know well, distressed investing. There are a lot of good distressed investors. There's just not a lot of good product right now, mm -hmm. right? I'd much rather have a mediocre distressed investor with a lot of product that's cheap, who's disciplined, than a great distressed investor who's clever by half, who's a little less disciplined, and there's not enough product. And, and everything goes in cycles. Yeah. And your advisor community is really skilled at how do you put the different pieces of a puzzle together to create a holistic approach, right? No right one on. manager yep. is the puzzle. They're just a piece to the puzzle. Right on. You want to be able to mix, you know, the Ken Griffin with the Seth Klarman. They got the different styles. So they're kind of like, me. Oh, I'm sorry. You too. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So you manage other people's money, obviously, and been doing it for a long time. How does that impact how you invest money personally? So obviously, we eat some of our own cooking because yeah. we're fixed income nature and we tend to be conservative fixed income. You know, It's not in my best interest to put 100% of my net worth in all of our products. I'd be missing out on a lot of potential opportunities. In my field, in credit opportunities and in value investing, I see a lot of one-off opportunities that I do avail some of our personal capital to take advantage of. So you know, from that standpoint, it'd be no different than a family office that sees different opportunities and takes advantage of it. But when it comes to certain investments where, you know, either it's my mother or it's my child or it's myself, and we have needs that aren't part of what I do, we outsource it just like anyone else. So when my father died, I was very interested in having global exposure and not being solely in the United States and not being myopic. And I didn't love a lot of the sort of uh, emerging market opportunities because I was focused on 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 less developed, and I really was very excited about India over a twenty year, thirty year time horizon. So what I did was I spent, I took half of my father's excess net worth that my mother wasn't going to need in the next five or ten years to live on. That money we put in municipal bonds, actually, which we also outsourced to somebody because I don't. And mom doesn't have a lot of money. You know, she's probably a lot like most of the client base. That the Orion Group sees the high net worth. It's actually, we call it high net worth, but the upper middle class, but not the ultra high net worth accounts. So you know, millions, but not multi millions. And 
I went and looked for guys who I thought were both in private equity and in public markets that would do a really, really good job and said, here it is. And, you know, I didn't really pay attention a whole lot other than like once a year because I determined they were good managers and wanted to make sure they were disciplined, but the returns were the returns and left it there. And, you know, I have a friend, I invested a little bit in some venture capital one day with a guy who thinks really good at an area in venture capital. I wanted some exposure. It was a small investment. And he said, did you read my letters? I'm like, no. So well, what do you mean? Don't you want to see all the exciting things we're doing? I said, I sent you a check, right? He says, yeah. I said, when can I get my money back? When he realizes the profit, he sends it back. I said, exactly. So when you send it back in five or 10 years, I'll know how I did, right? I don't need to read your letters. There's no added value for me. It's too late. I can't do anything about it. So, you know, I take that approach. When we look to allocate money, we take the approach of what's the need we're trying to solve? Is this choice or choices, right? Because you don't necessarily have one choice, a good solution. Can you monitor them to make sure that they're disciplined and they're providing what you want? Yes, they may outperform or they may underperform a little, but I'm really more focused on are they solving the need in a disciplined way that I'm comfortable with? So professionally, you have been making investment decisions for 30 years. That means given we're all living longer, you're almost halfway done with your career. So how are you performing at such a high level? What do you do to make sure you're performing at a high level physically, mentally, emotionally? What are some of your tricks of your trade there? So I think the most important thing is to surround yourself with a good support and good team, right? Because what happens if David Sherman gets hit by a truck? I want to make sure our stakeholders and shareholders can feel comfortable that the same mantras and DNA that they thought they were signing up for are ongoing. And, you know, I feel very comfortable. That's why we have, you know, portfolio managers that are prepared to step in and why we spend a lot of time, quite frankly, with older staff because they have those gray hairs. So that's one, having a great team. And I think, look, Lots of things happen in people's lives. Parents get sick, spouses get sick, children get sick. Then there's great things like graduations, right? But you want to be able to spend time with your friends and your family and also be able to contribute time to the community at large. So you need to surround yourself by the resources that can help allow you to have a more balanced life. So that's by far the most important. And you could say, well, that's you know fuzzy, but you can't take care of yourself, right? You can't be an individual and take care of yourself if you don't have a good team around you. So I think that's first and foremost. And then look, from a personal standpoint, I love reading and learning. And I think having an inquisitive mind is both keeping you sharp and healthy. And it could be about anything. It could be unrelated to business because the world's connected, right? So it could be just, hey, I was reading an article about vitamin storage in the middle of the Arctic and how they're storing every breed of vitamins and the DNA and how somebody, they just opened up because they needed some seeds that were being stored there because there was a famine. I mean, that's kind of cool. So reading, I think is really interesting. And I think everyone, like I play cards. I mean, games, I like games, cards. I love movies. I love plays. And I spend a lot of time with my family. Good ways to refresh indeed. Well, this has been great, David. I really appreciate your time. You've been more than generous. How can listeners learn more about what you're thinking and doing at Crossing Bridge Funds? So first of all, they can go to the website at crossingbridgefunds.com. They can go to cohansic.com. We take a lot of time writing our quarterly commentaries. You know, they're not, hey, here's the greatest idea we ever did. A lot of them are what we consider thoughtful. Uh, they're quite long. So that's one way of doing it. We answer email. Call Email me. David at Kohansic.com or David at CrossingBridge.com. We pick up the phone. We find an interaction with 
investors, potential investors, or just average people, un, un, not interested in us at all, but just have things to share is, is a great source of getting your pulse on what's going on in the world. Love it. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Any closing words? Everyone just be safe and try to be happy. Oh, here, I'll yeah. tell you a closing story. <laughs> all right. I love it. So my son, a little personal, my son over the years would say things like, is it bad? Dot, 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 dot. Right. And, <laughs> you know, I never thought about the world as, is it bad? It's not, not, not how I thought about things. So my wife actually was reading a piece to me and shared a, a little anecdote that I, was, that I thought was appropriate. And I think it's appropriate in ending it. So once upon a time, there was a peasant. And the peasant came upon a, a stallion that came home with him. And the neighbor said, oh, that's so good. You now have a stallion. And the peasant said, good, bad, who knows? Then the stallion runs away. And the neighbor says, oh, that's terrible. And the peasant says, good, bad, who knows? Then the stallion comes back with seven mare. How fortunate you are. Good, bad, who knows? Then the peasant's son tries to break the stallion. Stallion throws the peasant's son. He becomes a cripple for the rest of life. And the neighbor's like, oh, that's terrible. You know, the Yiddish phrase called stories. You have such stories, such problems. And the peasant says, good, bad, who knows? Then, unfortunately, Russia invades the, the country of the peasant. And all able men have to go to the front. And unfortunately, they all die. But because the peasant's son was a crippled, he couldn't go. So the point of the story is what might be good might not be so good. What might be bad might not be so bad. At the end of the day, it is what it is. And you move forward. Dang, that is an awesome close. I love it. (laughs) That's so true. Well, Dave, well, thanks again. And... That will do it for this week. Again, everybody, Robin Murray will be back with us next week. So as always, stay balanced, stay the course, and thanks for listening to The Wang Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.